right, that's enough pain. It goes on. Oh, man. Okay, foolishness. I mean, I don't know if there's a better video to show to try to encapsulate utter male foolishness. So this morning, we are talking about four fools. The text that Austin just read from 2 Samuel 6, we're looking at four fools, okay? And what I want you to come away with and hear is we're going to walk through three fools, and those three fools show us the way to death. But the fourth fool shows us the only way to life, and he too is a fool. And the fact is, we need to follow the fourth fool. We are all going to live as fools. I hope I can at least somewhat convince you of that by the end. There, every path in life is going to be a path of foolishness. And what I want you to see is that the path to life, the, the path of being an abandoned fool, okay, I'm going to give it away like David is, is the only path to life. So we're going to start with Saul, who actually doesn't feature technically in this text, but we're going to start with Saul, the fearful fool, as we jump in here. Saul, the fearful fool. Now the book, like Austin actually said, the book of 2 Samuel is a book that largely, it's a book about kingship. It's a book about the kingship of David and how, in many ways, David pictures the greater king to come that we all need, that this creation is, is yearning for, um, to be reconstituted, and that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus actually came from David. He's an ancestor. Uh, excuse me, he's a, uh, David was his ancestor. He's a descendant of David. But um, it's a largely a contrast between Saul, the first king of Israel, and David. And Saul was not a man after God's own heart, but David was. And so reading this, we've, we haven't read through, we haven't preached through every single text in 2 Samuel. So um, as we jump into 2 Samuel 6, what we need to, it's, it, it would behoove us as we look at how one of the first things David does when he becomes king is to bring the focus on the ark and to get it in the center of his rule and reign, in the center of his people. It would behoove us to say, well, what did, what did Saul do by contrast? And Saul, by contrast, he's totally unconcerned about the ark during his reign. Um, the ark is the preeminent symbol of God's presence. It is synonymous with God himself. Uh, but Saul didn't want God. He wanted help from God. Can you get the distinction there? He wanted answers from God. He wanted to be liked. Uh, he wanted the security of, of, of that, of being liked, the security of, of a good reputation. In 1 Samuel 15, 30, it sort of crystallizes this aspect of Saul. And um, he said this fatal flaw. He said, I have, he's, he's talking to Samuel, the prophet, and he screwed up big time. And Samuel basically says, God is taking the kingship from you because you've rejected God and you haven't obeyed him. And he, he knows this, and yet he says, knowing that God has basically abandoned him, he says to Samuel, just for the sake of appearances, look, I've sinned but honor me now before the elders and come out with me anyway, just so I can keep up appearances, right? So he doesn't really care about the fact so much that God has said, I've abandoned you because you've abandoned me. Rather, he wants to keep up appearances. He wants the same to come out with him. And so Saul is concerned with what seems, not with what is. And man, I've been guilty of that so much in my life. Um, and this is foolishness. This is foolishness. And it comes out of a fear of man, a fear of what man is going to think, man or woman, of me. But the gospel means that God knows the real you. He knows every bit of you, even more, certainly more than anyone else, and even more than you know the depths of depravity of your own heart. God sees everything. David in, in Psalm 139 says, if I go to hell, 
I go down to the depths of Hades, the Old Testament word for hell, the underworlds, even there, you will find me. Okay, you know darkness is as light to you. So there, there is no secret to God. So God knows the worst part of you and loves you anyway, and he's expressed that love by sending his own son to live a life of obedience in your place and to die a death of punishment that you and I deserve on the cross. Um, he, he knows the worst parts about us and offers us total forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration in Christ. So what does it matter what man thinks? Isaiah 2.22, it's the last verse in chapter two of Isaiah, the great prophet, who lived 700 years before Christ. And, he, and it says, um, why do you fear man in whose nostrils is breath? Of what account is he? Okay. Jesus says, fear not he who can just kill the body. Rather, I'll t- I'm gonna tell you who you should fear. Fear the one who can cast the body and the soul into hell. Yes, fear him. So Saul's driven, he's a type of fool that's driven by men's opinion. This will get you into serious trouble in life. It will ruin your life. So he's the first type of fool, Saul, the fearful fool. Let's look at the second, Saul's daughter, Michael. She's the proud fool. Michael is a proud fool. She is the type of fool that's also driven by what others think and wonder why. The apple has not fallen too far from the tree. She's the daughter of a man who felt the exact same way. She's also driven by a very high opinion of herself, it seems, from this text. We don't have a lot on Michael in the Bible, but we do have this and a few other passages earlier. Um, She's always looking down on others, and actually there's a lot of play, literary play in this text, and one of the things she's doing, her vantage point is what? She doesn't join in with this momentous event of David bringing for the first time. See, one one of the things, let me back up, that I did not do very well is unpack for you how unconcerned Saul was with God's presence via the ark. And let me do that now. Okay, so Michael grew up the the daughter of the the first king of Israel. And as such, she saw that her father was not at all concerned with the ark of God, with his presence. In fact, it stayed in a house in a corner of Israel in a man's house his entire reign. He never made efforts to go do anything about it. So this is the first time we see a king of Israel going to get that sucker, okay? So, so Michael, um, she doesn't even go down. It's not a concern to her. She's not involved in going to get the ark. Everyone else is dancing, having parties. There's a feast. We'll get to that later. People are freaking out, partying, praise breaks everywhere. This is a huge deal. And Michael is aloof, and she's in a window looking down on events. Um, she's not able to look up. Uh, at God or anyone else, because she is proud. And when you're proud, what you're doing is you're scorning. You're looking down on everyone else, and you're looking even down on God. But that's a position of extreme unhealth. A position of humility looks up at everything, and certainly at God. Um, So she's a proud fool. Um, David's on a worship high, and at the end of the text, in verse 20, it says that he returned after that whole party. He, what? He's on a high and he's been whirling and dancing before the Lord in his pajamas, basically. And he, it says he returned home to bless his household. So he goes home after an amazing day at the office, as it were, to, just to tell, you know, the kids are going to rush up and the wife's there. And let me tell you guys what happened. And he, he's on this high and he heads home to tell his family all about it. And his wife First of all, she didn't participate, but she doesn't even wait inside of the walls of 
of the palace to tell David, I'm really upset with you. You were exposing yourself. All those girls were looking at you, bro. She comes out and disgraces him and spews acid all over his face, as it were, verbal acid, in front of his subjects. This is a, this is a Middle Eastern potentate, and this is not a guilt-innocence culture like our culture. This is a shame-honor culture, and she shames him in front of everybody. In, after this huge event, um, pride will make us bitter, it will destroy our relationships, and it will keep us from worship. Um, pride is the root of all other sins. The humble worship best. Think kids. Kids have no problem worshiping. That's one of the reasons I love and I want to encourage. I love that the kids are starting to come in. We want you to encourage you, not force you. If you want to check your kids in, fine. We have a, very, a premium on family worship. And we, when your kids are seeing you worship, you are telling them things about God and about your own heart that you can never articulate with words. They're catching something of your love for God. And, and seeing my kids and seeing kids in here, bring your kids in and then we'll dismiss them if you can. And we'll dismiss them uh, you know, before I get up here to preach, before the, before the announcements are made. So, um, but kids worship, and I learn a lot from watching my kids. So last night, Susu and I, my, Susu's my three-year-old daughter, I don't think we've ever had a dinner at our dinner table in our house alone, but we did last night. And the rest of the family was out, and um, we were eating alone at dinner in our normal places right next to each other. She's the head of the table, oddly. I've never thought about how weird that is. <laughs> She's the head. That says something. <laughs> if you know Susu, she's a firecracker. She's a little Pied Piper leading us all. But she and I were sitting a sweet little time, eating our meal, and somehow, I can't even remember now, but uh, we were singing to God at the table or praying, but my eyes were open, hers were open, and we were singing to God like a little song, and she just raised her little hand. And she kind of lifted her eyes up. That is what I'm talking about. It was such a sweet moment to raise your, to be in a posture where your hands are raised and your eyes are lifted. Let us be a people who look up, who are constantly looking up to receive, who are serving people, getting low, because we know we are fully known and fully loved anyway. Take heart, you're far worse than you ever dared imagine and far more loved. That's the gospel, Okay. We can get low, we can look up at people while serving them. We're looking up at the living God who gives us our identity. We know we are subject to him and we are glad to be in that place rather than looking down, right? Let us be a people who look up rather than down and who raise children to do the same. We live in a cynical, scornful age that is looking down at everything. It's so easy to tear a house down. There's a proverb about this. Anyone can tear a house down with a hammer and a, you know, a crane. It's easy. Any, any idiot can tear a house down, but it's really hard. It takes a lot of skill and time to build a house. Anyone can tear. We have a society full of people tearing things down on the media and other things, left and right. Um, but to build is, is, is a hard thing to do. So let's raise children who worship and who look up, and let's be a people who do the same. Um, in Proverbs, there's, the fool is like the worst He's a character that's strewn throughout the Proverbs. Don't be like the fool. But there's one character that's worse than the fool, and that, that's the person who is wise in his own eyes. He's proud, he's, a, he's scornful, he's a mocker. Um, we need to be careful because we don't know what we don't know. Pride is blind to its faults. And so 
Um, we need to, that's one of the reasons it's so good to be in a community of people who really love you and who know you and who aren't, who aren't going anywhere and who can come up and say, brother, I see this, sister, I see this in you. You know, pride is the last to see things in itself. We need a community of people that love us and that we trust that can point things out and that, and that, uh, to us and that we can point things out to, okay? And this is a picture of Christ, and it's the body of Christ at work. Um, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. You don't know what you don't know, but God is trying to tell you what you don't know through his community that he's given you and through his word. His word is one of the things that shows us, that straight edge that shows us all the ways in which we're bent and points us to Jesus, a lover of our souls. So um, check it out. It's pretty good stuff, the word. Um, if you aren't ju- reading through the Bible with us, jump in. We're doing a reading plan together. Um, read scripture, uh, the Read Scripture app. It's a great thing. So, um, man, if you, again, with Michael, before we move on to the, the third fool, Uzzah, if you worship anything else in this culture of ours, it's fine. I don't care if it's a carrot or a person or another ideology. It doesn't matter. No one's going to be offended. But if you worship Jesus, you're a freak, you're looked down on, you're ostracized. And that's kind of always the way it's been. We've had this po- a few pockets in this country where it's not been that way, so we, we get our feathers in a, in a fluff. But the Lord says, you know, you're going to be ridiculed for me. So we should count it as, as a, a badge of honor um, if we are. But, but all hell breaks loose when we um, worship the living God through the person of Jesus Christ. I, um, there's power in his name. I was at a Home Depot, I've shared this story before, but I was at the Home Depot actually right there on Chimney, uh, near Chimney Rock off I-10 on the north side, years and years and years ago and in a former life. And I had a guy helping me, super nice Home Depot worker, and he was in a wheelchair, and he, re- he was with me the whole, he had gloves on, he was an older man with a mustache, and with me the whole time, super helpful. We got to the checkout line, and he was just kind of waiting with me in line, talking. And I mentioned, I was talking about this and that, and even God, and my face some, and then I mentioned the name of Jesus. And he literally went back two times in his wheelchair. He just, it kind of like blew him back and you could see his face got flush. There's power and he just, he kind of zipped out. That was, that was it. There's power in the name of Jesus for good or for ill. Jesus is, is a dividing line. That's evidence of two things at least. One of our rebellion. Okay, no, nobody takes the name of Buddha in vain. I've never heard it, you know. There's no power there. But there's power for good or ill in taking the name of Jesus in vain and then not in vain. They're different, good, bad power, good power, right? Um, of our rebellion of how he, maybe he really is the Lord because we're so, maybe it tells, tells me about my state, not of grace, but my natural state that I'm born into of rebellion. Maybe he is the king. Maybe I need to get right with him. Maybe he truly is the way and I need to submit. It also tells us again about his kingship, our rebellion and our position, but also the fact that maybe he is the king. Um, and the thing, lastly, about Michael, that's, that about her is that as we dig into sort of the scenario, the context of her life and what she's saying to David, her pride and her um, even spewing in David's face and her objections to David doing what he did with the ark are so plausible. They're so plausible. And pride is often that way. It's so plausible. Um, David did, she says, hey, you exposed yourself. He probably did expose himself. He's in a linen ephod, which is a light priestly, we'll return to that, garment, it's linen, and it's an undergarment, so he probably wasn't wearing, you know, Haynes, Haynes his way, underwear underneath, and uh, he's spinning around, he's whirling, the text tells us, before the Lord, so homie is probably flashing some pulse, I'm just gonna, sorry ladies, um, it was not at all dignified, 
It's not what kings did. She's right about that. It's not what kings did. It wasn't dignified. He's not concerned about his own reputation. And we're gonna get to that. That's the, the hot core of this text, okay? And she has a real problem with that, with him not looking dignified. Again, she's hung up like her dad on what seems, not on what is. Don't do that. But only Christ can take you there. Only Christ, Christ can take you to what is. Otherwise, it's gonna be a life of seems. What a shell. Um, and finally, the larger context, David had had her brought back. He, she was his original wife, but then, but then things happened and Saul basically married her off. Not basically. Saul, her father, married her off to someone else. And after David takes the throne, he has her brought back. And her husband loves her and is following her as she's being taken back to David and crying for her. It's a really sad thing. And so she's, she's just been bounced around, pulled out of this marriage where she probably loved this guy. She's back with David. And so it, her objections come across as plausible. You look the fool, son. These objections can often seem so plausible. Don't buy in. It's foolish pride. Okay, thirdly, Uzzah, the instinctual fool. Uzzah, the poor guy who touches the ark as it's going down off the cart and gets taken down. He, he dies at the hand of the living God. He's the type of fool who worships God um, according to instinct, according to instinct, according to his own intelligence and ingenuity, as he thinks best. He approaches God as he thinks God ought to be approached in a, in a second, right? Uh, and let me, let me pa- unpack that just a little bit. You got to do some, some protology is the word, but if you look at the scriptures before this scripture, the law that comes before this that serves as the context for this narrative of kingship, um, David should have known. You know, Dave, the king in Deuteronomy 17, we're told the king is to meditate on the law of God day and night. It's your instruction book. It's your playbook. Live by it. Rule by it. Um, and, and what we find in Leviticus is that, in Exodus 25, rather, specifically, is that there were specific details. And if you've ever read through the Bible, and some of us right now are, and it's like, if you've been in Exodus and Leviticus, and now we're starting, we're cracking into numbers, like, that's the graveyard. Okay, sidebar. That's the graveyard of annual Bible read-throughs. If you are reading through the Bible right now with us, take heart. It gets more interesting. Keep pressing on. If you stopped a couple weeks back and just dropped and you're like, I can't take this anymore, just don't try to make it up because thinking of you pressing through all Leviticus in like a day or two makes me sad for you, okay? So, okay, forget about it. Just pick up where today is and keep going because I don't want you to give up. So all that to say, press through, but there are detailed, detailed, and this tells us something about its importance, right? Detailed instructions about how the plate, the meeting place between God and man, the tabernacle, later to become the temple. The tabernacle was a mobile temple. It was a tent that they packed up and then unpacked wherever Israel went in the wilderness, okay? It's a place where God met with man through sacrifice. And all the instructions for that and for the, Levi, the Levitical priests from the tribe of Levite who were, to, um, who were to take care of that place and no one else could approach unless they were there, all this was, is detailed throughout whole books of the law. And in Exodus 25, the ark is included. The ark is the, it's the very, God's very presence, the hot core of his being with his people. It's at the, in the center, at the hottest point, the holy of holies, in the tabernacle, the tent, the place that only one priest of the Levites could approach once a year in a certain way. And when they packed up this tabernacle tent and were on the move, okay, it had to be done in exactly the right way, all given instructions. And the short of it is that it was done on poles. Put rings on the ark, 
put poles through the rings and leave the poles there. Because when you carry the ark, don't touch it. You can't approach God how you want to. You have to approach God through his word, exactly as he says. And what is his word? What is the word God has given us how to approach him? Jesus. Jesus Christ. What what does he require of us but to believe on Jesus, who is the tabernacle, who is the priest that offers the sacrifice of himself? If you try to go to God any other way through good works, or any other way, you're done. You're the instinctual fool like Uzzah. And David sees this and he gets furious at God's fury. This guy tried to approach his own way and look what happened to him, this God, and David backs off. Gulp. And he just leaves the ark there for a few months. How am I gonna bring this holy God into, into our midst? How can we do this? According, David, to his word. So David realizes that, and the second time, they giddy up, and they do it right. There aren't many ways up the mountain, friends, but there is one way, and his name is Jesus, and anyone of any skin color or ethnicity or sex can come or age, but only through the one way whose name is Jesus, whose flesh was torn for us, whose blood was shed for us, and it doesn't matter who you are or what kind of sin you've committed because he paid for it on the cross. So come on and get you some. Come straight into God's presence, but you gotta go through Jesus. So David sees this, and he gets a holy fear, and it's a good thing. Our ingenuity cannot bring us into God's presence. Our good works cannot bring us into God's presence. They cannot make peace with God. Only God's word can, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Um, let's, let's look finally at the abandoned fool. Not finally, you know I'm going, to, you know I'm taking you to Jesus. You know that's where we're stopping. But uh, the fourth fool is David who pictures for us and leads us to Christ. David is the abandoned fool, okay? He looks ridiculous. He looks ridiculous, to, especially to Michael. He looks ridiculous to everyone who's looking for a dignified king. He looks ridiculous to everyone essentially except for one person or three persons. God. And guess what? God's opinion is all that matters. And David knows that. So he's an abandoned fool. Let's look, at, let's look at David. What a model for us, okay? In contrast to Saul, who never cared an iota about the ark or God's presence, therefore, it's the first thing that David, like I've said, it's the first thing he focuses on for his kingship. Um, and if you look at, uh, as I said, the ark is, is, is tantamount to God himself. So verse 16 has David dancing. Verse 16 has David dancing, not what, before the ark, but before the Lord, it says, because the ark is where God dwells with his people. It's the place where the blood is shed of the innocent, innocent sacrifice. It's the place Jesus brings us into, but we'll get there in a second. It reminds us of Moses, Moses, the man of God in Exodus 33, where in 32, the chapter just before God's own people, Moses is on the mountain getting instructions from God. God has just delivered his own people through fire and flood, through an ocean that he parted, raining things from heaven. He brings them out with a mighty hand. 
giving them a law to live by, to be a people who flourish. He's about to take them into a garden land. And what do they do in chapter 32? As Moses is on the mountain getting instructions for how the people can be blessed, they make a golden calf and they start worshiping it. Next chapter, God just says, out of the way, Moses, out of the way, I'm going to destroy this people. They are a wicked, stiff-necked people, and I will make another people. No problem for me. I didn't pick Israel because they were the best. I can bring up people from these stones if I want to. Out of the way, and I'll make a new people from you. I'm going to start over. Get out of the way. And Moses is like, God, no, I'm not going anywhere. Nope. He shows us in himself a picture of Christ who stands in the path of God's fury between God and us. And he says, take me instead. God doesn't do that, but Jesus, with Jesus, with Jesus, with Jesus, he does. He takes Jesus down instead of you. So you can live. So you can be flourishing in God's presence. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I just can't stop preaching. Jesus, it's a praise break morning, y'all. We're just gonna be taking some praise breaks. Um, I'll explain that later. All right, so, so he reminds me of Moses, though, in Exodus 33, who finally God says, okay, all right, fine. I'll bless you. I'll bless the people. I'll send them to the land I promised because I promised to Abraham. That's what Moses reminds me. Remember that promise you made? You gotta make good on that promise. And, and what's, it, what's this doing? It's giving us a window into God, God isn't convinced by Moses. He, he knows what he's gonna do, but it's giving us a window into how much sin hurts God. God is not a stoic. That's a, that's a Greek philosophical idea. God is not stoical. God is deeply moved by our praises. He's enthroned on them, as I said earlier, and he's deeply moved by our sin against him. Just as you would be moved if, if your kid just denied you and said, screw you, I'm out of here, I hate you. How much would that break your heart? You're evil, and yet that would break your heart. God is perfect in his love, and it breaks his heart. And this gives us a window into that. And what does Moses say? He goes, no, no. You can give us all the blessings in the world. If you don't go with us, no deal. And that's what David is doing here. He is saying, in bringing the ark, he's saying, first thing, central thing, God has to be with us. I don't care if, you, if I'm as rich as Chrysus by the end of all this. I don't care. God is what matters. So he wants God at the center he wants God in the midst of his people. And this is a picture of, of Eden. And there are all sorts of Edenic Eden where God created this paradise for Adam and Eve and for, his, for mankind and put them there and said, cultivate it and make of the whole earth a garden, but sin screwed that up. This is, there are all sorts of uh, pictures of Eden woven throughout this text. And this is a recreation text. God coming back to be in the midst of his people, to dwell there with him, to feast with them. We see a feast in verse 18, don't we? to feast with them, to be in fellowship with them once again through a king who rules to bless his people, who knows that the people's welfare is in God being near them and with them, and who also acts as a priest. David's in a linen ephod in verse 14. That's something only, that's a priestly outfit. Kings didn't wear that. David's in a linen ephod. In verse 17, what's he doing? He's making sacrifices. Who makes sacrifices? Not kings, priests. David is this king who is through him, he's bringing God and the people together and he's a picture of a greater king that would do that in a greater and more perfect way, the son of David, Jesus Christ. Um, so this is not just the moving of a piece of furniture, it's a recreation event and we see that through David. And what is David doing kind of at the hot core of this text? Again, the part that Austin probably loves, I'm guessing. He's dancing or whirling with all his might. Don't you love that phrase? With all his might, everything that he has is he's putting into this worship of God. Just You could see him like not even caring about or thinking about anything else but the living God. He's dancing 
with that ephod on. And he's, got, again, sorry, ladies, he's got that skirt on, that light, and he's just undignified. And Michael takes, she's umbrage at that. She takes severe, she's, she's, um, she's offended by that, right? It's a, it's a spectacle. Kings did not do this. We live in a very casual culture, not in the ancient Near East. Kings did not do this. Uh, and when Michael confronts David for dancing in front of the young women that were there, she's jealous, right? Again, plausible. He says, no, I have been dancing before the Lord. Coram Deo, in Latin, before the face of God. David is living there and he's bringing his people along. He realizes that this is the place that we were made for, to live before God. As someone was saying earlier, Nathaniel in his awesome testimony, hey, you should not think about testimony more often. That was great. Um, that was fantastic, such a good word. I almost didn't even come up to preach. I'm like, he preached it. Um, but as he's saying, we, everything we do, Christ brings us into a place in our lives where everything we do is worship. Everything we do is worship, okay? Sunday is no longer the end of the week. It was for the Jews. Now it's the beginning of the week because the Lord rose at the beginning. It's not, it's not a landing pad for your week. It's a launching pad into a life, into a week, into a life where everything is worship. This is practice. This is getting filled up to go out. This isn't like once a week. Forget that. No. Um, and Christ brings us there. So David goes on. He says, I will celebrate or make merry, depending on your ESV translation, that, um, depending on how, how old your ESV translation is. It uses both. I will celebrate or make merry before the Lord. This word means play, sport, or cavort, to dance, to sing, to, make, to be happy, to joke, to revel. It's this it's just an amazing word. We need more of this in our lives. We need, we need more of this. I don't want to be known as a dour or doer, depending on how, what side of the Atlantic you're on. Dour, stoical, serious. We ought to be serious even in our play to take the play seriously, right? Not flippant, but to be serious about everything we do, but to be a people who revel, we, who are great partiers who are celebrating life through the living God and, and people are getting sucked in because they're like, man, I want to party like that, right? And this is what David does. Um, and you know, children, again, to bring them back, they are a great example of this. I love, they have so much to teach us. We take ourselves way too seriously and about serious things, we don't take them seriously and not serious things, we take them seriously. Kids are great at cavorting. You don't have to teach a kid to play. I know every parent in here is like, uh-huh. Yeah, it's true, right? You do not have to teach a kid to play. Kids are awesome at playing. Our kids love to just play in the house. I don't know what they're doing all day, but they're playing. When we tell them to get to work, they're playing. They're professional cavorters. You know who else is good at playing or what else is animals? Now, am I saying you ought to be like an animal? Well, kind of. Not totally, all right? Don't take it out of context. But animals are better at doing what God made them to do, at being cows or cats or duck-billed platypuses than we are, okay? Let us, let us celebrate God in his presence and let that extend throughout. And yes, let us, let us also be a people who mourn when it's the appropriate time to mourn, okay? The Psalms are full of this sort of playful cavorting and revelry. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life, David says. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Um, I'm a pres I come from Presbyterian stock and I was raised in the Presbyterian church and I'm so thankful for that. But we're called the frozen chosen. That's sort of a, you know, it's one of the things we laugh at about ourselves. The frozen chosen, not a lot of emotion. It came out of Scotland, so there's not a lot of emotion. I was in Scotland, Robin and I, for a while in our family and I used to fill the pulpit and preach about four or six times a year and you just, 
this is what you'd get out of a Scottish service. Like, people would be looking at you like this. And that was happy. That was cavorting to them, right? That was, that was their praise break. Um, but what, like our, favorite, like our favorite verse in the Presbyterian church is Paul in 1 Corinthians, I believe it is, where he says to a church that's just gone wild, way out of order. He goes, everything should be done in orderly manner. <laughs> like we put that over everything. Even like even singing and dancing and forget, it better be done orderly, you know? And, uh, and so maybe, maybe not. Maybe there, things ought to not be chaotic. God is a God of peace, but he's also a God of revelry. It's his. He made sex. We don't give that to the devil. He's the God that holds pleasures in his right hand, right? He is the source of life and happiness. Um, David sets the example before his people of what's important. Worship is his number one priority in his kingdom, and he makes this clear from the start. My mentor up at Wood's Edge, a big church up in the woodlands, he says to his staff on a regular basis, your job, we pay you to worship the living God and to spend time with him meditating on his law day and night. If you're not having a time with the Lord in the morning or at some point during the day, if you're not spending that focused time with him and in community, stop what you're doing, get under your desk and get on your knees and pray him and close the door and put on some music and praise him and open up the word and spend time in the word because you gotta fill up on the living God to be able to pour out and to be healthy. That's, that's our plumb line for life. All of our prayers ought to take this form. So many of my prayers are asking for stuff from the get-go I mean, God's our Father. He wants to hear what we need. At, you have not because you ask not. But our prayers in, in general ought to flow out of, and it helps not to think, okay, I have to start with praise every time. No, start with where you are, but to start by praising God, telling him who he is and then what he's done and thanking him and then letting our, pray, our prayers be, our lives of prayer be an, an outflow of that. Um, worship, David shows us, worship is the fuel for mission. It's the fuel for mission. If we get that wrong, we run dry. Um, it's not doing, doing, doing first. It's worshiping the living God for who he is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. Um, like I said, Sunday's not at the end of the week anymore. It's the start. It's not the landing pad. It's the launching pad. Um, resting from a Sunday, from coming to church on a Sunday to worship as the church, to come coming to worship, uh, is kind of like saying, I'm going to rest from eating or sleeping. Like, I want you to see it as fuel for your fire as something that you need, a regular rhythm of grace that God gives to us, as well as the weekly times that we get together as smaller expressions of the church's family. We need this. Worship is our fight. It's our fuel formation, but it's also our fight. Verse 15, it's like, it's like they're in battle formation, blowing horns and coming in with the ark. Worship is, is the battle. It's front lines activity. Um, Jericho was the first city that they took when they came into the promised land through Joshua. And how did they take it? through praising God, and the walls came down. God works when we praise. He sits enthroned on the praises of his people. Sometimes, see, we're at war. We're told throughout the scriptures that we, our real context, regardless of what we see around us with our eyes, is that we're at war. But yet so often we live like we're just kind of asleep at the wheel. We're playing. We don't play for keeps. Okay, we don't take the word of God, says we take what the media tells us or what our eyes are telling us, and we sort of live for tomorrow or for the next 30 or 50 years. No way. No way. Work, your work is worship. Worship is your work, and all these things will be added to you. Um, David 
shows us what a king should do. A king blesses, a king feeds his people, as he does here in verse 18. He intercedes for them, he leads his people in worship, and perhaps most importantly, for our purposes, look at verse 22. What does a king do, what does David do? He loses his honor, that his people might gain honor and that God Almighty might gain honor. He's the opposite of Saul. He's not concerned with appearance. Saul's obsessed with it. But what does David say in verse 22? I am content to be lightly esteemed as long as it means that God is greatly esteemed. I am glad to be dishonored if it means that God is honored. Worship takes God seriously and it helps us take ourselves less seriously, right? Not in the way that we're flippant, but humble. What did C.S. Lewis say, that, uh, that great maxim where he says like, Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You're just, you, you're an honest assessor of your gifts. You know, like, I, I stink at that. No, that's false modesty. You just don't think of yourself a lot because you're focused on other people and your face is up and you're taking your cue from that. That's what's identifying you and you're losing yourself in everything you do, okay? So you're comfortable just to be who you are, sinner saved by grace, being made more like Jesus every day. So like David, Jesus is a king and a priest, the perfect one. His reign benefits all creation, and he brings us to God through his person and work. Um, there's a, Jesus, lastly, is God's own fool. Jesus is God's own fool. David's the abandoned fool, and finally, Jesus, he's God's own fool. If you, uh, there's a parable told in Luke 15. Luke is Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third gospel. And Jesus tells it, and he tells it of a, the story of a, prodigal son. It's the story of two sons. The first one's prodigal, and he goes, and he, he says basically to his father, you're dead to me. Give me what's coming to me, to me before you die, all of my inheritance. I'm going to go spend it how I want to, and he leaves home, and he says, screw you to his dad, and he goes into a far country, and he lives on wild living, profligate, prodigal, and in the middle of the parable, it says he comes to his senses, and he's just totally shamed his father and the whole community, and in an ancient Near Eastern community, normally, you would not be let back in the door. And if you were, shame on the father, because you're now shaming the whole family, and he just stole the inheritance from all the other kids, and it's shame on the father now if he lets the son back in. So no, you'd have nowhere to go. But what does the son do? Halfway through the parable, he comes to his senses, and he says, I live better even as a slave in my father's house than I am here. And he goes back home with his speech prepared, and what does his dad do? His dad sees him coming from a long way off, like a speck on the horizon, which means what? He's been searching every day. He's been looking for his son, maybe standing on the rooftop. He's on the, he's on the second floor balcony. And he runs. He's is a Middle Eastern patriarch. He's older. He's got a robe on. They didn't wear Levi's jeans. He hikes, his, he hikes his robe up, and he just runs. Totally undignified, like David. He hikes his skirt up, and he runs out to meet his son, who has just who's been shaming the family. And he throws his arms around him. The, the son kind of like starts his speech and he cuts it off. And he says, servants, quick, ring, robe, sandals, fatted calf, it's party time. The son was gone, he was dead, and now he's alive. This is the heart of the father. God is a prodigal God. God, Jesus Christ, God went, went to ultimate lengths through his son by sending his son out to the far country, down here, amongst us into a broken place to be broken for us so that we could be made whole, to bring us back home. And yes, if we come too close to the living God, not according to his word, we will be burned up like Uzzah and worse. But through Jesus, we aren't. We have safe passage. 
because he was. He was the only one on the planet, the second man, the second Adam, who lived as he was supposed to live, obeyed the Father from the heart. But he was punished. Why? Because that's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. He took it for you. Okay? He is the only way to God. And he was willing to become a fool. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us to be, he embraced the shame. There's no loincloth. You see Catholic crucifixes, they have loincloths on Jesus. Uh Uh-uh. No, this was rated X, y'all. This was totally new, bloodied from top to bottom, on a cross, splayed out, the son of the living God for you. This is how foolish God is willing to be to honor you and to bring you back into his family. And this is the path to life. And the stuff that we can't see on the cross was far worse than everything that is described physically that happened to Jesus. Becoming an incarnation of your sin. He who knew no sin was made to be sin. You know how you feel sin? How it's like the sin of lust is like greasy on your tongue and the sin of anxiety is cold. Or, or they're all, Sins have a different feeling. They have physical effects on us. You could see someone hanging their head down like, man, they could just be sad. It might not be sin, but man, sin just makes us like, like spiders that have a, have a flame put to them. They just curl up in and ourselves. Jesus became all that for everyone who would trust in him. All their sin, infinitely offending God Almighty, he became that on the cross. And the white hot wrath, the just wrath of God against our sin was poured out on him. The Psalms say that God is a shield. How? Because the shield takes the blow so you don't have to. Jesus is that shield. He was willing to become a fool for us. So a few ways to be a fool and then we're done. Let me just give you a few, if you're taking notes, be, be helpful, maybe. Um, a few ways to be a fool. Be an investment fool. Be an investment fool. Knowing what we know now from this text, okay? Meditating on the fact that God became a fool to honor us, to lift us up to the highest place, okay? Be an investment fool. Francis Chan, a teacher out in California, he has this great illustration. I've shared it recently with some folks of a rope. He has it all the way across the stage, and he's like, he's like this rope actually ends at the rock, behind the rock, but imagine that it goes on forever. Eternal rope. And he's over here, and he's like, he's holding just one fistful of it. And he says, this rope is everything that you're going to live for. We're not, we're not going to die once we die. We're going to live forever, either in heaven or hell, either in God's presence or away from him, okay, bearing up the own, our own punishment for sin if we don't trust in Christ, okay? And he says, this that I have my hand on, and he lets go of it, it's the red part. That's our life. That's your 80 years. The rest of the eternal rope is the rest of everything that you're going to live for, your life. The crazy thing is that most of us live for like this speck right at the end of the red rope. We put all of our resources, our time, our energy, our thoughtfulness, our 401k, all of our resources into this life so we can, we work, we work, we work, we work for the weekend, the weekend of our 80 years, right? That's the American message. He's like, you fool, you fool. What a terrible investment because everything you do in this red part shakes the rope of eternity. It will affect everything else. Why not use your reason? Why not be an investment fool? Why not send it forward where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal? Either it's right or it's wrong. And if it's wrong, then go do what you want to do. But if it's right, and it is right, then let's live like it. 
So be an investment fool, be an expert fool. 10,000 hour principle by Malcolm Gladwell. If you read him, New York Times writer and other, other monographs that he has out, they're all great. Be an expert fool. He says basically, you probably mostly are familiar with it, but it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. He talks about the Beatles, like they played for 10,000 hours and then they got amazing. He talks about Bill Gates. He computer programmed for like 10,000 hours and then he was just the best on the planet. It takes this focus. Let's become experts. If this is true, and it is, right, this principle, it's been proved, I mean, shown to be, there's a lot of evidence for it. If you want to develop an expertise, why not spend your time and talent in developing an expertise in knowing the living God? I'm not talking about knowing about him. Yes, know about him, but you can stop there. Satan knows a ton about God. He, he has the whole scripture memorized, I'm sure. He's way more intelligent than we are. But he knows about God, but he doesn't know God in relationship because he knows Jesus died. He was there mocking Jesus. But he never, ever will say, Jesus, you died for me. See the difference? One small step, but a giant, giant cataclysmic step. Okay, the difference between Jesus, you died, and Jesus, you died for me. So knowing God, having a life focused, like Nathaniel said, in everything he's doing, his goals are, in everything I'm doing, I wanna focus on knowing you. In making money. Yes, God made you to make money. Yes, he made you to cultivate God's his good creation. Let everything you do be worship with a focus on him and not on just the next 80 years and me and mine and me and mine. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Be an expert fool. Be willing to sound the fool. Preach the gospel and if you must use words. You ever heard that? Falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It's also rubbish. Um, okay, I say that. It's a pretty good phrase, all right? It wasn't something that St. Francis said. The fact is, a lot of us use that as a crutch to not speak the gospel. <laughs> to say, I'm just gonna live. Let me tell you something. It's good for people to see how you live and to see Jesus, and they will, I pray. But if you, the gospel has to be articulated verbally. Someone can never just look at the way you live and know, God sent his only son to die for me in my place because I'm a wretched sinner that deserves what he got. You have to articulate that. And sometimes it takes years of being with someone before you earn the right. Yes, it's true. But we are too slow to sound the fool. Okay, we are too slow to sound the fool. Um, You have to really hate someone. You believe the gospel that without Jesus Christ, without trusting in him and not in your own works, you are dead in the water and headed to hell, getting what he got on the cross. If you really believe that, you have to hate someone to not share the gospel with them. Truly hate them. There's that Seinfeld episode where she says, she, Elaine finds out that her boyfriend's a Christian, and she's like, wait, so you, you've never even talked about this with me, like you believe, you do believe I'm going to hell? He's like, yeah. She's like, you truly hate my guts. Be willing to look the fool. Be willing to look the fool for God. Don't worry, I'm almost done. Isaiah, God called him to be naked, walk around naked for three years. Ezekiel had to cook his food on poop on dried animal dung. Hosea went and married a hooker. Why? Because he was disobedient? No, because God told him to. What? Yeah. Um, so many examples. But it doesn't have to be that extreme. It could be like choosing to homeschool your kid instead of, or it could be choose to take your kid to public school, just depending on where you are and what God's calling you to do. It could be choose, it could choose to work from eight to five, right, to six instead of committing your life to working all the time so that you can be there for your wife and your children and your neighbors. That could be foolish. That's foolishness to an ambitious world. There are so many ways in which we could be fools for God. I'm gonna close down with this last thing. Be willing to be the fool by spending your time 
your money, your resources, your attention on those who cannot help you. I need to work on this big time. I want our church to be known as a church that is pouring ourselves out for the sake of those that have less than we do, that can't give back. Pure religion is this, that we, that we, um, that we minister to orphans and widows. Why? Because they can't give back to us. They can't pay. I, I have my, Jesus even says it. It's so explicit that it's, it makes me frustrated. I'm like, I wish there was some ambiguity here so I could kind of teach this away and apply it some other way. He's like, don't just invite your friends and people that can pay you back and invite you back to their house. Go and get someone off the street, okay? Invite people into your lives and bless them that have no way to pay you back because guess what? That's an incarnation of the gospel. It's what God did with us. He didn't love us because we could pay him back. He loves us out of his, just his profligate love poured out upon us. So let's image the living God in doing that. Um, final story, Gary Haugen, he's the president and founder of the International Justice Mission with whom I would love for us to partner one day. Um, he, he says, when I was growing up, I had older brothers and they, they were big and strong and I, I was a younger brother and I was trying to play football and working out for football. And he said, my brothers would say to me, Gary, you're small, but you're slow. <laughs> so you're expecting, so gosh. So then he'd go into the gym and he'd be pumping up and uh, he'd see dudes like, there's a corner, they always hang out together, right, of dudes that have the jugs of either water or whatever and it's like red and they're just like, and they have no necks and they're just, they live to work out and they're huge. And he's like, and what is it for? What are all those muscles popping out of everywhere for? Posing. You know, posing. He's like, in other words, all those muscles, like the one time they get to use that is like, honey, can you open this jam jar for me? That's what it's for, opening the jam jar. He's like, man, let's not be people knowing what we know about the fact that God has made us and then redeemed us at infinite cost to himself, knowing what we know, man, being given all the resources we've been given, let's not be a people who just use all that to open a jam jar, just for, to spend it on us, to spend it on our own pleasures. Let's be a people who look the fool and act the fool and are abandoned to the living God, willing to go low because, so that he could be lifted up and others could be lifted up. Um, you will spend your life as some sort of fool. Look, guys, don't spend it sniffing wasabi. Every other way other than being a fool for Christ is as stupid as doing what that dude did in sniffing that line of wasabi. Spend it following God's own fool. You won't be sorry you did. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for being willing to be a fool, sending your son to be a fool for us, to be shamed for us, that we might receive a double portion, that we might be brought into the family as first sons. Lord God, we love you. We bless you. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.